Hi, I'm Robert Jeffress, and I'm glad to serve as your Bible teacher every day on this great radio station on today's edition of Pathway to Victory. Luke says that Stephen saw the Lord standing at the right hand of God. So why does Jesus stand at this point? I'll tell you why I think he stands. He stands out of respect. He stood to welcome this first Christian martyr named Stephen. Welcome to Pathway to Victory with author and pastor, Dr. Robert Jeffers. Over the centuries, countless believers have been persecuted because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. From the very beginning, enemies of Christ have sabotaged every attempt to advance His cause, sometimes putting the friends of Jesus to death. Today on Pathway to Victory, Dr. Robert Jeffress shares the story of the very first Christian martyr. Now, here's our Bible teacher to introduce today's message. Dr. Jeffress? Thanks, David, and welcome again to Pathway to Victory. Most of us can't imagine what it means to become a Christian martyr. Oh, sure, we feel an occasional pushback when we stand up for what's good and right. But we cannot imagine losing our life, as many have done, because they refuse to denounce Jesus. Well, I can assure you that persecution, as we've never known it, is coming to our land. If you need evidence, just go to your local school board meeting. Rational public discourse is rare. Shouting matches are common. In these heated moments, we can sense the forces of evil driving a wedge between neighbors. Today, I'm going to introduce you to the first Christian martyr. He paid the ultimate price, but this man is not to be pitied. Instead, his story should light a fire of passion in our hearts so that we're ready to withstand whatever persecution comes our way. To help you, I've written a new book called Unstoppable Power. It's based on the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts. And today, when you give a generous gift to the matching challenge that's active right now, I'll make sure you receive your copy. In my book, Unstoppable Power, you'll discover how the first Christians stood up to their adversaries and how you can do the same. You see, no person and no circumstance can prevail against the power of God. While there's still time and copies available, please reach out to Pathway to Victory and request your copy of my new book, Unstoppable Power. David and I will give more details later in today's program. But right now, let's turn to Acts chapter 6. I titled my message, The First Christian Martyr. The courtroom was buzzing with excitement. A man was on trial for his life. And although the verdict had already been predetermined, the courtroom was packed that day with people who were curious about what defense would be mounted on behalf of the accused. It sounds like a scene in the classic novel, Harper Leaves to Kill a Mockingbird. Remember the book or the movie? Uh, Tom Robinson is a black man living in the deep south in the 1930s. He's falsely accused of raping and beating a white girl. The attorney, the white attorney, Atticus Finch, played by Gregory Peck in the movie, presents a brilliant defense proving that Tom Robinson was innocent, not guilty. But the jury couldn't look beyond skin color. Instead, they convicted Tom Robinson. And as Atticus Finch was leaving the courtroom, 
All of the black citizens of that little town had been forced into the balcony to watch the proceedings. When they saw Atticus Finch passing by, they stood up in unison out of respect for the man who had tried to do the right thing. Seated in the balcony that day, along with the black citizens, were Atticus Finch's two children, Jean Louise, who went by the nickname Scout, and Jim. And when that verdict of guilty was delivered, Scout couldn't believe it. She couldn't believe that the jury would ignore the well-reasoned arguments of her father. She sat there in disbelief until the black pastor, Reverend Sykes, nudged her and said, Miss Jean Louise, stand up. Your father is passing by. It's reminiscent of another courtroom scene 2,000 years ago when another man was on trial for his life, a man named Stephen. He was falsely accused. He was convicted. and He was stoned to death, and yet... When he was ushered into heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ himself stood out of respect for this first Christian martyr. And today we're going to look at the account of the death of the first Christian in history for the sake of the gospel. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, beginning with verse 8. Up to this point in the book of Acts, the church has been persecuted. Mainly the persecution was directed toward the apostles. And not only that, the persecution involves some light beatings and even imprisonment. But when we get to verse 8, all of that changes with the two words, and Stephen. Those two words, and Stephen, lead us into a world in which Christians were and continued to be hunted down and even killed for their faith. Now, this story of Stephen that is found in the last part of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7 can really be divided into three parts. First of all, there is the detention of Stephen. Secondly, the defense of Stephen. And finally, the death of Stephen. Let's look, first of all, at his imprisonment, his arrest beginning in verse 8. Remember, the church has been through a little squabble about taking care of widows, and the church decides to appoint deacons to oversee that task, and the very first deacon selected was this man, Stephen. Verse 8 says, Stephen was full of grace and power and was performing great wonders and signs among the people. He was not only performing signs, he used those signs to authenticate the preaching of the gospel. Stephen wasn't just serving tables for widows. He was preaching the gospel. And there was opposition to his message, we see in verse 9. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. In Jerusalem, there were more than 500 synagogues this particular synagogue, the synagogue of the freedmen, was apparently made up of Hellenistic Jews, that is, Jews who had been transported from other countries to relocate in Jerusalem. And they opposed the message Stephen was preaching. Why were the Jews so opposed to this message? 
Well, first of all, they couldn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He didn't fit their thought of what the Messiah should be. But they were also uh, infuriated at the idea that Gentiles, non-Jews like you and me, would have a part in the kingdom of God. They hated that message that Peter, John, and now Stephen were preaching. Verse 10, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. And so they secretly induced men to say, that word induced, secretly induced, parabolo in Greek, means they paid off some witnesses to make a false accusation. And what was that false accusation? We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Well, if you blasphemed, you spoke out against Moses and uh, God himself, that was enough to get you arrested. And so they arrested him. And then when they had him in custody, they expanded the charges in verses 13 and 14. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man, Stephen, incessantly speaks against this holy place, that is the temple and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this temple and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. There's an old Yiddish proverb, a half-truth is a whole lie. And uh, that's what these false witnesses were doing. They were giving half-truths. Yes, Jesus had said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But he wasn't talking about an insurrection to destroy the temple. He was talking about a resurrection from the dead. That's the truth. And yes, it's true that Jesus uh, expanded the law of Moses in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you've heard your father Moses say, thou shalt not commit adultery, but... I say to you, to look on somebody with lust is the same as committing adultery in your heart. He didn't contradict the law of Moses, but he expanded on the law of Moses. Verse 15, as he spoke these words, they fixed their gaze on him. All who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Doesn't say he became an angel, but an angel was a messenger of God, and they saw in Stephen a determination, a readiness to deliver God's message. And now we're ready for the defense, the self-defense of Stephen. Remember, there's no chapter division in the original text. This is all one story when we get to chapter 7, verse 1. And uh, Caiaphas, the leader of the Sanhedrin, the high priest, heard the charges, and he says to Stephen, are these things true? Verse 1. Remember Caiaphas, the same high priest, had presided over the first trial of Jesus. The charge was that he claimed to be the Son of God, and Caiaphas asked him, are you indeed the Son of God? Is that who you claim to be? He's asking Stephen, are these charges true? And in response of these accusations, Stephen now delivers his defense, which is the longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts. Don't get nervous. It doesn't mean it's going to be my longest sermon ever. But this is the longest sermon we find in the book of Acts. Now, 
I need to stop here and just say a word about sermons and preaching in general because there's a lot of different opinions and controversy about how preachers should preach. When I was in seminary, uh, I was taught, oh, the only kind of sermon you should preach is an expository sermon, expository preaching. That's the only way to preach. Well, that's a one way to preach. In an expository sermon, you start with the scripture. It could be a verse, a chapter, a paragraph, but you start with the text and you explain what the text says. And then you interpret it. What does it mean? And then you apply it. What does it mean to us today? That is expository preaching. This is an expository sermon. We're going through the book of Acts. I'm trying to help you understand what it says, what it means, and how it applies to your life. Expository sermons are great, but they're not the only way to preach. Uh, you can preach a doctrinal message. A doctrinal message takes a certain biblical doctrine and looks throughout Scripture to see what Scripture has to say about that doctrine. That is a doctrinal message. But another way to preach is topically. You take a topic. Uh, the topic may be marriage. The topic may be finances. The topic may be heaven. Uh, what You start with the topic and you say, now what does Scripture say about this subject? All three are legitimate ways to preach. It's not the style of the sermon that's important. The important thing is the sermon be biblical. Whether you start with the scripture and apply it, or you start with the subject and go back to the Bible. The Bible has to be the foundation. Now, when we get to Stephen's sermon, it's not an expository message. <laughs> Stephen doesn't say to the Sanhedrin, now open your scrolls to the book of Amos, and we're going to talk about verse 1 of chapter 1. No, he doesn't do that. He starts with a topic, and here's the topic Peter or Stephen addresses in his message, and that is, what is the relationship between Judaism and Christianity? And his central idea and every good sermon or every good Sunday school lesson has a central idea, one sentence that summarizes what you're trying to say. Here's the central idea of Stephen's message. Write it down. Christianity is not a contradiction of Judaism. It is a fulfillment of Judaism. That is what Stephen is going to prove. Christianity is not a contradiction of Judaism. It is a fulfillment of Judaism. And how does he prove that? If you just read chapter 7, I'll confess to you, it seems like a boring recitation of Jewish history. But when you delve into it, you'll find that it is a carefully crafted argument that supersedes anything Perry Mason could ever come up with in a defense, or Matlock, or whoever your favorite lawyer is. This is a well-reasoned defense using the Old Testament. Now, notice how he does it. First of all, Stephen's defense against blasphemy. How does he defend himself against blasphemy? He says, let's look at the patriarchs. Again, what were the Jews saying about Stephen, they said, Stephen, you're a Jew, but you're not quite Jewish enough. You're letting all these Gentiles in, and we can't have that. You're not Jewish enough. And so Stephen answers, well, let's go back and look at our patriarchs and see. 
And if we look at what they believed, they illustrate the fact that God's interests always extended beyond the boundaries of Judaism. God is not just the God of Israel. He's the God of the entire world. And one way you know that is through Abraham. Look at verse two. And Stephen said, hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. You know, Abraham was kind of the George Washington of the Jewish people. He was the founder of Judaism, the founder of the nation. But Stephen had the audacity to say, guess what? Abraham wasn't always a Jew. (laughs) There was life before Judaism. He was in Mesopotamia. He was a Gentile, and yet God chose him. People who don't know me very well, they assume that because I spent 15 years ministering in Wichita Falls, Texas, I must have been from Wichita Falls, Texas. No, I passed through there. I had a ministry there, but that wasn't my whole life. And it's the same way with Abraham. He started out in Mesopotamia. And not only that, even though he went to the promised land, that's not his ultimate destination. Hebrews 11.10 says Abraham was an alien and a stranger, and he was not seeking an earthly city, but a city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. His goal was not to end up in Israel forever, it was to end up in heaven. God's interests extend beyond Israel. In Genesis 12.1, God said to Abraham, Abraham, I will bless you and your descendants, and through you, what? All the nations of the world will be blessed. God created Israel. Israel is special. It's God's human object lesson of his divine faithfulness and purpose. But God's purpose through Israel was to save the entire world. Christianity is not a contradiction of Judaism. It is the fulfillment of Judaism. By the way, you see that truth in the last patriarch, Joseph, whom we looked at, he uh, cites some of the instances out of Joseph's life. For example, the idea that being a Jew automatically makes you holy and sanctified and assured of heaven. No, not at all. Uh, Stephen says, look at Joseph. He was betrayed by whom? By his 11, 11 Jewish brethren. His brothers were the nucleus of the nation of Israel and they betrayed him. Or look at uh, Jesus. His Jewish brethren were the ones who betrayed him and had him nailed to a cross. Uh, Stephen reminds his audience that God's purpose extends beyond Israel. For example, in Jesus, God told Jesus to go to a foreign country, that is planet Earth, to work out salvation for the entire world. Uh, God said to uh, Joseph, His ultimate purpose would be worked out not in Israel, but in Egypt. It was through Egypt. Joseph working and ministering saved the entire world. The point is a simple one. Don't call me unfaithful because I'm speaking about Gentile blessing. That has been God's purpose from the very beginning of time. And Israel was the instrument God used to bring blessing to the world. Next, notice Stephen's defense against slander, and that is Moses himself. If Abraham 
were George Washington to the Jewish people than Moses was Abraham Lincoln to the Jewish people. He was the great lawgiver, the one who received and mediated the law from Mount Sinai. Remember the charge against Stephen that he had blasphemed Moses and he had tried to change the law of Moses. Well, Stephen said, let's look at that for a minute. You want to talk about Moses? Speaking against Moses? Look what your Jewish forefathers did to Moses. They, won't, they weren't always a part of his fan club. When he tried to lead an exodus after killing that Egyptian soldier, nobody followed him. You all rejected him. And when he finally, 40 years later, became the leader of the exodus, all your Jewish forefathers did was gripe and complain for 40 years in the wilderness. And you want to talk about the law you think I'm altering or changing? Remember, when Moses was on top of Mount Sinai receiving the law of God, your Jewish forefathers were at the base of the mountains breaking the very law Moses was receiving. Acts 7.41 says, At that time, they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to that idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. And by the way, you think the law is so holy? Why are you breaking it right now, Stephen said. Exodus 20, 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbors. He said, as long as we're talking about Moses, let's also remember, Stephen said, that Moses himself said there was someone greater coming later than himself, the Messiah. Acts 7, 37, this is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. And then finally, the climax of his message, Stephen's defense against anarchy, Isaiah the prophet. Remember the final charge against Stephen was, you're trying to destroy the temple. You're following Jesus who said he was gonna destroy the temple. The not so subtle implication was, if you're a follower of Jesus, you must be an insurrectionist as well. How does he respond to this is really bold? Look at verse 48. Stephen says, however, the most high does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. And then he quotes from Isaiah, heaven is God's throne. Earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all of these things? You know what Stephen is saying? He's saying, guys, the temple's a nice place. It's an important place, but it's not that important. Don't you realize God doesn't just dwell in the temple? The temple's not big enough to contain God. The whole world is God's temple, and he fills all of it. Quit fixating on this temple and start fixating on the God who dwells in this temple and throughout the world. Stephen set the watermark for boldness. He was fearless before his adversaries. And I have much more I want to show you about this courageous man who was the first Christian martyr. Plus, to help you learn more, I've written a brand new book for you. It's called Unstoppable Power. My book contains Stephen's story and many others as well. Their stories are told in the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts. In this riveting portion of the New Testament, we read about first century Christians and the terrible oppression they faced. 
During this season of persecution, the church exploded with thousands of new converts. They were truly unstoppable. And here's the point. You can be unstoppable, too. The same God who empowered Stephen and his Christian colleagues can fill you with his amazing power as well. Ask for your copy of my brand new book, Unstoppable Power. It's my thank you gift to you when you make the simple gesture of giving toward the wonderful matching challenge that's active right now. Every dollar that's given before July 4th will be matched and doubled in size because of this matching challenge until we reach the goal of $500,000. By giving to Pathway to Victory right now, you'll empower believers just like you here in America and around the world to stand strong in their faith. Your generosity makes it possible for us to boldly share the powerful name of Jesus while the doors remain open to do so. Thank you for standing with us. I promise to remain faithful to fulfill the commission of Christ to be His witness throughout the world. And with your help and by His power, and together we are truly unstoppable. David? Thanks, Dr. Jeffress. You are invited to request the brand new book, Unstoppable Power, when you give a generous gift to support the ministry of Pathway to Victory. Call us at 866-999-2965 or visit our website, ptv.org. And when you give an especially generous gift of $100 or more, we'll also include the complete Unstoppable Power teaching series on audio and video discs, plus a study guide to use for personal or group study. Remember, your gift right now will be doubled in impact through our Unstoppable Power Matching Challenge. Again, call 866-999-2965 or go to ptv.org. You can send your request by mail if you'd like. Here's the address. P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. Again, that's P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. I'm David J. Mullins, inviting you to join us again next time for Part 2 of the message, The First Christian Martyr, right here on Pathway to Victory. Pathway to Victory with Dr. Robert Jeffress comes from the pulpit of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas.